Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. My name is Kiff Scheuer. I'm the Climate Change Program Director at the Local Government Commission. I'll be your host for a new monthly series on adaptation in livable communities, where we will be discussing ways we can create more resilient communities by fostering knowledge exchange, identifying new resources, and sharing innovative perspectives and tools. Today, our first guest in the series is Beth Gibbons, and she's going to help us set the stage for the series, and we're really glad to welcome her to Infinite Earth Radio. Beth Gibbons is the Executive Director of the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, ASAP. ASAP's mission is to support and connect climate adaptation professionals while advancing innovation in the field of practice. The purpose of this work is to celebrate and encourage courageous action by individuals to increase adaptation preparedness and resilience in their communities through proactively changing the status quo. Beth herself has spent over a decade working in sustainable development and climate adaptation. We're really glad you can join us today, Beth. Thank you so much, Kiff. It's a pleasure to be here, and I love that introduction. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's good to have you on our show. So many of our listeners are familiar with climate change, certainly the mitigation side. Climate adaptation, a little bit newer. Resilience, maybe even a a different concept for them. So what exactly is an adaptation professional? Yeah, this is a great question, and I do have the the pleasure and the honor to get to answer this question multiple times a day. And so let me dive in there, sort of where ASAP comes at this. As a professional society of adaptation professionals, we think of people who are often finding themselves midway through their career and suddenly having to change the way that they're doing their work because climate is forcing them to perhaps reevaluate what the type of fish species are that they can stock their streams with, or they're having to change the way that they prepare for a design storm as a stormwater engineer, or perhaps it's somebody in community health who's suddenly seeing a more regular spike in heat-related illness. As these professionals mid-career realize that the way they do their job is changing as a result of our changing climate, we see them moving into the space of being a climate adaptation professional. So the climate adaptation professional is somebody who realizes that acting on climate change now is necessary, that doing this work in a way that is holistic is really intrinsic in the job itself and is willing to accept and embrace that we're living in a really dynamic time and we're moving towards a dynamic future. And so the climate adaptation professional has has a holistic view of their work, has a, a really kind of unique temporal take on their work, and is somebody who is remarkably optimistic, but also very pragmatic in trying to advance some change in their field, in their community, in their government, so that we have communities that are more equitable and ethical and have more effective practice going in going um, into their work. Wow, that's a really interesting and broad space to operate in. And you touched on a lot of disciplines. Is it hard to get that range of people to see a common frame for their work? You know, I don't think that it is. And I often think of it that adaptation has an advantage of coming about 
at the moment that it is. So to be a climate adaptation professional 50 or 100 years ago perhaps would not have been as possible where the way that we think about a profession or a field was much more defined and it was narrow we have realized in today's work and in all of our practices that having a more inclusive view of how do we advance practice is necessary. And adaptation comes along following urban planning, which really blew open public health along with design and architecture, following sustainability, which kind of brought this idea that perhaps we need to think more about what we have today if we want to have it tomorrow. And adaptation builds on that to say, not only does this have to be sustainable, we actually have to be adaptive too. That there are things that we cannot just sustain, but we need to actually adapt our practice in order to make sure that our communities are perhaps fulfilling these goals of equity and ethical work now, but more so, let's take advantage of a really tremendous moment of change, this climate change moment that we're in, and think about in a more visionary way, where do we want to go and how do we advance ourselves to that? To your question about is it hard to bring people together from diverse backgrounds under this kind of big tent, we don't think that it is. At ASAP, part of the goal of the organization is to create a community that is both broad and deep so that folks can come here and find peers who are similar to them and working in a similar region or working in a similar sector, but also can find people who are perhaps struggling with a similar question of how do I integrate uh, climate information into my decision-making process? And that process looks similar if you're working on an engineering question or a public health question or an education question. And so we're trying to really break down those silos so that we can all do this work better and do it faster uh, by having a really diverse community. Diversity is a resilient strategy in itself, and we think that the organization embodies that. Wow, that's great to hear. Really, really interesting. Sort of picking up on that, you mentioned a desire to have holistic practices and be more inclusive, community-based approaches. And certainly professional societies as a whole have often been more connected to technical fields, science-driven fields, or the professional class. But as we've seen across the climate field, and I think sustainability in general, we're trying to get better at integrating social equity, environmental justice issues, building a more inclusive and responsive field, and also addressing these vulnerabilities that are happening at the community scale. So I wonder, how is this both informing your work and how is ASAP addressing some of this frontline activity in the work you're doing in the community you're building? Yeah, I think that those are both really great questions. And this goes, uh, this might be a little bit of a tangent, but I think that there's a question that's being asked of, of the field of adaptation and resilience of, is this a transformational change or is this incremental change? And in that, I think the question is, is people are saying, if we have inequities, structural racism, embedded injustice in our system today, are we going to try to adapt to maintain the status quo or are we going to adapt into something that transcends what our current restrictions are based on these inequalities that we have built into our system? And our answer is twofold. One, that 
there will be incremental change that is necessary. Incremental change is what gives us demonstrable action to point to an activity and say there was an adaptation strategy that was implemented successfully. It can be measured and there are outcomes. And there are not a lot of those yet, unfortunately. And so we believe in those incremental changes to be able to point to demonstrable success. But we strive to move to a place of really transformational change. And for us, I think in the adaptation community and the sustainability community, that means that we have to be very, very directed in not just talking about equity or having an equity training, but rather think about the integration of equity and diversity into all of our programs. One way that we're doing this within ASAP is that we're partnering with many of the regional adaptation forum that are coming up in 2018. At the forum, we're encouraging innovation and technology tracks. And in some places, we're co-sponsoring innovation and technology receptions. Our goal in these receptions and in those tracks is to be reaching out to minority-owned businesses and where we can to be working with historically Black colleges and universities and tribal colleges and universities to make sure that we're featuring research and work that's coming out of those labs and that we're actually creating a more diverse community and a more diverse workforce that is being featured in these innovation and technology tracks. Because we realize that we need to be advancing our work with these innovations, but we also have to be advancing in our inclusion and equity. And unless we can actually do these things together, then neither one of them are going to bear us the kind of success and advancement we need as a field. Wow. Thanks for that. Really interesting approach to tackling the issues. And I'm curious to hear more about some of these programs and the ways that you're building the field. I've heard that you're taking on the Resilience Dialogues platform as another aspect. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I would love to. So the Resilience Dialogues is a program that was initiated under the Obama White House. And we've had the opportunity to be a lead organization with the Dialogues over the last several years. And we have now taken over as the private side leader. And we're doing this in collaboration with the U.S. Global Change Research Program. The Resilience Dialogues is an online platform which brings subject matter experts together with communities that are under-resourced or remote. And through a week-long facilitated online discussion, subject matter experts help the communities to identify what are their priorities and what are their vulnerabilities and where are the kind of climate intersection in those vulnerability and priorities for the community. This is what we call a framing dialogue. And then we have a second dialogue that can follow that where communities then work with subject matter experts, sometimes the same ones and sometimes different ones, in a connecting dialogue. And there the goal is to help these communities to connect with the local, regional, state, and federal resources and the public and the private resources that are available to help them advance action based on the priorities identified in the earlier module. We see it as a way of really helping reach communities that have less resources, but we also see it as a way of really reaching into the science and expert community to give them an opportunity to have their service really shine and to work together with the community through this facilitated process and get a better understanding of what needs are on the ground for communities as they tackle climate change. 
Beth, I think our, our listeners would really like to hear about an example of a resilience dialogue so they can understand how that comes about and how the subject matter experts and community practitioners come together to mutually learn and hopefully advance some solutions. Yeah, thank you so much. I think having these kind of specific examples does help to explain a program like this. In one case, so in California, for example, we worked with Antioch. California. And we were able to connect with that community first by going through a network, which was the ICLE network. Through ICLE Local Governments for Sustainability, they helped us to identify communities that they thought would be especially prime for going through the Resilience Dialogue program. We were able to then do a call with that community, identify what some of their key needs were, and then turn back to our subject matter experts who had indicated they were available to support a dialogue. And for the record, we have about 150 subject matter experts that are kind of on call to support this program. And we were able to compile a team of subject matter experts, community leaders, together with a trained facilitator. And over the course of the week, they were able to identify some of the leading challenges and priorities that were especially related to their um, climate action planning that was taking place at the time. And after they went through the dialogues, both the framing and the connecting, they made a choice that they were going to go back and actually revise their climate plan based on the information that they had learned and based on the input from the subject matter experts. So I think that that was really a great example of a community that was kind of in process thinking about climate, use this as a chance to hone their understanding of the challenges they were facing, and then were able to really convert that knowledge into something that was really action-oriented and taking place in the community at the moment. Brilliant. So I can see the value for the community. How are you getting these subject matter experts involved? I mean, we're talking about climate scientists, uh, hydrologists, maybe federal employees. How are they getting, you know, what do they get out of it and sort of what is this process like for them? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that part of the answer to that is why this program makes so much sense as something that ASAP does and facilitates, because we think about that goal of connecting and supporting the climate adaptation professionals. And it, this program really becomes a way for the subject matter experts who have a specific set of knowledge to engage with a community and it gives them a service opportunity, which many people are seeking in their professional practice. It also gives them an opportunity to really understand how to take their specific skill set and apply it in a more generalist setting. And for the subject matter experts, we see this and have seen it as a really great opportunity for their own professional growth. And, and at times, we've heard how this process is challenging for the subject matter experts because they feel like they have something very specific that they want to get to, and they kind of have to hold it back as they go through this facilitated process and the community explores its needs, explores its resources, and sort of gets to the point that they can dig in to the subject matter experts' specific area of expertise. And, and I think that when subject matter experts who participate express that kind of discomfort, it means that we're really doing it right. It means that we're giving that community the standing it should have to express their own expertise and knowledge about their interests and focus areas. And we're kind of 
holding back that subject matter expert for them to be learning and taking in this community experience while they um, kind of tee up what their really unique knowledge set is. I really like the way you frame that as for or as sort of an authentic dialogue between different parties with different power and different voice and expertise and trying to, to bridge that effectively. You mentioned also connecting as this uh, throughout all of this. And I wanted to come back to your, you made a note about the innovation and technology piece as part of the regional forum. And we are certainly at the local government commission, really excited about your participation again in the California adaptation forum in helping us put on the regional adaptation leadership award Awards, the Daily Digest, and some other activities. And I'd love to hear more about how you're doing this uh, strategically throughout the country as a platform for, again, connecting people to this field. Yeah, absolutely. I love getting to be part of the adaptation, the California Adaptation Forum as well. And I think that in many of the other forums in the country, they look to CAF as the gold standard of what they're trying to achieve in their own regions, which I think it may go without saying, but it, it should be said anyway. Much of the country looks to California for that leadership in so many ways in the climate context. For ASAP, we think about collaboration and partnerships as being in the DNA of our organization. We don't do collaboration and partnership because we should or because someone wanted us to or because you know it's even a good idea it's that that is at the very core of our being and so when the opportunity to convene people region to region comes along in the form of the regional adaptation forum it only makes sense for us to support those efforts and to find ways that we can support what's already happening and try to enhance it in ways that we identify as the field, you know, moving the field forward. The idea of ASAP convening its own meetings when there are already regional meetings taking place would be antithetical to what we are about in the way that we try to collaborate and partner and support what is already out there and not lead to more duplication and not lead to more redundancy and not lead to more competition. People, I think, already feel very, very challenged to commit themselves to. And so we try to make sure that we make the burden of engagement low and meeting people where they are and through the regional forum, it's fulfilling that. That's fantastic. Yeah, and, it, and we've certainly seen that happen year over year and folks are starting to see that connectivity and it's great to see those sort of cropping up nationally. One other area that I wanted to touch on, again, sort of teasing out some of these themes that you've talked about as an organization and for the movement, you talked about in the Resilience Dialogues how there's this shared learning going on. And I know you guys have recently launched a mentor mentee program, which seems like an extension of that co-learning, co-evolution of knowledge and practice. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I would love to. So we're in our second cohort of mentors and mentees. The mentor program is a member-led activity, and it is something that I think members of ASAP had wanted to see for quite a long time. We have currently seven pairs of mentors and mentees who are going through the program. And I think in the next cohort, we'll end up with 10 formal pairs that participate. The program is nine months long, and each month they have a process that they go through. And out of guided questions for this rich mentor and mentee engagement. The participants in the program also have the opportunity to join some special webinars that we host with climate resilience officers from across the country. So sort of a very close-knit conversation on professional development with different CROs. 
we have seen a amazing response to this cohort this call for participants in the next cohort. We've had over 48 mentees apply and we've had a dozen mentors apply and we're thinking really hard about what do we do with this information and with so many people who are eager for mentorship. And what's interesting to me when I look at the list, some people who I see on it, I think should be applying to be mentors. And this is something that speaks to where we are as a field, that there's very little capacity building programs out there for anyone really at at all stages of their career. And so ASAP is looking at this and trying to think about what does it mean for the way we support our members, the way that we support the professionalization of the field, that we see People who have 10 years experience, 15 years experience working in sustainability and into adaptation, applying to be mentees. They need something. They need a next step to keep pushing their career forward. And so in addition to certainly taking care of those kind of younger and emerging professionals, we also are thinking really critically about what do we need to do to support people throughout their career life and so that we make sure that we have those supporting structures that make sure somebody can stay in this field, stay successful and motivated and see where their next step is so that we don't end up with people um, coming into the field and then leaving it because they don't see where they can go. It's really vital. And I'm really excited to hear and see what happens with that program. And it's really interesting to think about that nurturing process going up and down the career pathway and pipeline. So we've talked so far about what ASAP is and what you've done, and you've provided a lot of great context and examples for the specific programs and platform that you've built. So I want to spend the rest of our time actually talking about where we're going. You're sitting in the hot seat, so to speak, and you've built a great uh, structure, it, it sounds like, for the field to mature But what we're facing is huge and it's daunting. So as I think ASAP is turning seven, I'd like to talk about the state of the field and where it's going and really think about, again, some examples of what's on the horizon, both in terms of risks and solutions, because you're you're sitting there thinking about this every day. And there's got to be some things that keep you up at night. We've talked about a lot of positive steps, but what should we be talking about that we're not talking about? And where should we be turning our attention to take this to the scale we need to go? That's a great question. I do have a unique opportunity to sit where I sit and to look at the field as a whole and to think about where do we need to be going. I think the recognition by the field as a whole And maybe as a result of some challenging times that we're going through in this country, putting equity and inclusion and valuing diversity more centered in our lives and in our practice is incredibly important. I think the adaptation field has heard that and is working to respond. And it's a slower process than it should be. But I do think that those principles of equity and inclusion are emerging and we're seeing them actually being carried out in work. I think that it is critically important for us as a field to also and simultaneously understand the role of the private sector in this work. We are in a point in this country that there seems to be a general crisis of the public good. And we have to either consider how we will be 
addressing that crisis and bringing back a value to public good, and that may be public services or infrastructure or whatever you will, or you have to think about how you're going to harness and manage private and corporate sector. I stay up a lot at night worrying about this because I think people imagine that equity and the private sector, you cannot work on both sides of it at the same time. And if we give up either set of work, then I don't think that we will actually be able to achieve the kind of holistic, effective practice that we know that we need as a field. So I see us with quite a bit of ways to go on both of those sides. And I see us as really a field that is kind of the tip of the spear when we think about this crisis of the public good, because climate adaptation covers so much. It covers the infrastructure, but it covers the social services. It covers that concepts of social cohesion and community. And we really have to be the people who are, I think, guardians of the public good and advocates for the public good and make sure that we don't allow what some forces would like to see, which is a really diminishing of the public good to continue to occur. And so we have to be advocates for that. We have to be advocates for our cities, for our states, and for our federal leaders to really take on the reality of how big this challenge is and to be acting in a way that protects the health well-being of all of our communities. So with that in mind, and as we think about the close of this conversation for now, and as we look forward to this series as a whole, I'd love if you could tell me three, four, five examples of both just who's doing amazing work at a variety of levels? Who are the rock stars, whether people or projects or activities that are really you're excited about because they're really doing and fulfilling this mission? And what are the things that our local leaders, because a lot of the, our audience are local elected leaders at, in communities and cities around the country, what should they be doing? What are the two or three things they should absolutely be doing to get on the ball and help this movement move forward? So what you absolutely should be doing is having conversations with your whole organization, with your whole staff. And that means often when adaptation or climate or even sustainability conversations take place in a city, you might get a parks director and a health person and public works and probably somebody from the urban tree program if you have one, if you're lucky enough to have one. But when you say all, I mean, you need to have somebody from your legal department and somebody from OMB and somebody from the city manager's office so that when the moment comes that your program, this new climate adaptation strategy, which is being mainstreamed, as we say, you have a strategy now, and it is going to require that the parks department and the streets department are working together with the health program. When they all come together with their budgets, speaking to one another, the legal department says, yes, this can happen across the departments. And OMB says, yes, we get it. We not just allow it, we get it. We embrace it. We want to be there too. We know a lot about how to do engagement well. And whether or not it can always be accomplished, the principles of engagement of who do you need to have agree with this process at the end, well, then they need to be there at the beginning. And the way that we work within our cities and within our institutions is the same principles that whoever needs to be there at the end needs to be there 
at the beginning too. When you look at leadership and where is the best of the best, some of this I think is known and perhaps a little bit old, but regional planning is really where it's at. These impacts of climate change don't care about your neighborhood boundary or your city boundary or your county. These are really wide-reaching. And if you look at the regional planning efforts that are taking place in Southeast Florida, the four-county region that's called the Southeast Florida Compact, that is the most advanced work that we have in the country on four counties that have come together to say we need to use the same climate information so that when we speak to our elected officials, we have shared credibility and we can actually advance policies that will be good for our whole region. So I think that in regionalism, that is definitely the top mark. One of the most innovative things that I know of happening is a stormwater system management tool, which is being tested in the Detroit system, where they have deployed remote sensors, remote sensing devices throughout the stormwater system. And along with these remote sensors, they also have boons in the tunnels. And the boons can deploy in 90 seconds. And so during a storm event, which will typically lead to a combined sewer overflow, some backflow, other nasty health outcome, they can now see where in the stormwater system there is capacity in the tunnel, deploy a boon so it blows up and can hold water back into one section of the system where there's still capacity and then release the water more slowly. So there you're really moving beyond green or gray and you're really thinking about a technological solution that uses the infrastructure that's currently available and kind of makes the most out of it. And then when we think about what a more natural landscape solution, I'm really attracted to where, actually, I know three different places now that this is happening, where we're seeing saltwater marsh restoration taking place. The one that I know the best is in the Blackwater Marsh, which is on the coast of Maryland. And there they have been dredging a river alongside the marsh and then actually spraying the dredge material out over the saltwater grasses. Basically, they're raising up the land area under the marsh. And so they're extending the life of the marsh. And at the same time, they're working to prepare uplands around the marsh to become new saltwater marsh areas so that they make sure to restore well, maintain where they can and then begin to put in place new habitat for the birds that require that area for their migration and a couple of species that are unique to the area. Oh, those are really great examples. Thanks for sharing. Maybe one last question and then we'll wrap up. So this for me is always the elephant in the room. How are we going to pay for it? We don't have big budgets for local government, for private sector investment, and this sounds kind of expensive. What are your thoughts about the state of adaptation financing? I have a few different thoughts about it. There are innovative finance solutions that are coming online. There is a group that's called Refocus, R-E colon Focus. They have an incredibly useful handbook on termed resilience bonds, essentially taking cap bonds or catastrophe bonds, rethinking them into resilience bonds. There's a case in Washington, D.C. on the application of an environmental impact bond or a pay-for-performance measure to support their stormwater program. There are efforts happening in other cities where they're looking really hard at their capital improvement plans to crack them open and find where they could be using existing funding for these mainstreamed actions. But I'll be honest with you, Kiff. This goes back to what I said a minute ago, that there's a crisis of the public good. and. There are 
a couple options. We can be allowing disinvestment universally across our cities, or we can be really fighting to make sure that investing in the public good is happening. And it happens through federal, state, and local actions, and it happens by individual actions. We have got to become advocates for the systems that we use, the services that we need, and the way that we want our neighbors to be treated and protected. And that's an obligation that all of us hold, not just as adaptation professionals, but honestly as as residents and citizens of this country, to uphold an obligation to believe that there is a public good here. And I think that's a huge piece of it. There's another piece that says there is a lot of wealth across this country. In some way, it might be better distributed and shared if we can figure out a way to do that how is equitable and palatable to the population. Well, thank you for that. It's a certainly a compelling call to action. And I appreciate all the ways in which you're thinking about advancing and growing this field and helping use it as a model for sustainable, equitable community development overall. Really appreciate it. I could talk to you all day about this, and I'm looking forward to more opportunities to have that chance in the future, but I'm afraid we're out of time for now. Beth, can you let us know where we can find out more about ASAP? Absolutely. So we would love to have you join us on our website. It's adaptationprofessionals.org. We also have a Facebook page um, and, of course, a Twitter, which is Adapt Pros. And I really hope that people will come and check it out. Join us as a member. You'll receive our biweekly newsletter. And you certainly can follow along on social media with all of our latest and greatest news and resources. Well, thank you so much, Beth, for helping us kick off this conversation on adaptation. And thank you for the work you're doing. And for all of you, thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.